Let's open your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 1. We come this morning to the very heart of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And though our attention will be exclusively focused on verse 27 this morning, uh, I want to read verses 27 to 30 for the context. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So about a month ago, I was looking over our preaching schedule for Grace Life and preparing to preach the, the latter parts of Philippians chapter 1. And I had come to the realization at that time that I'd be preaching this text sometime pretty close to the beginning of the year. And of course, New Year's is the time when everybody does a little reflecting on the previous year, thinking about how we've lived our lives and we make resolutions and determinations to live better in the coming year, whatever better may mean. The process seems to involve a kind of refocusing on things that are important to us so that when we will have come to the end of this next year, we will look even more favorably on it than the year before. And for many of us, these determinations often include improving our diet, resolving to eat better, exercise regularly, hoping to lose a couple pounds. Others resolve to watch less TV or uh, devote more time to reading a good book or just spending more time away from work and with the family. One writer put it this way about New Year's. He said, for those who, who are too busy, New Year's is the time to start enjoying life. For those who are too lazy, it's time to get organized and learn to do something new. And for those who were too self-indulgent, well, it's time to lose weight or pay off some debts. But whether on the first of the year or some other time, the resolutions that we make as Christians must be of a decidedly different character than those made by the unbelieving world. Now, sure, some may overlap. I don't think it's ever a bad idea to start eating more healthily or to do exercise. But we who are first of all concerned with the glory and magnification of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be inclined to resolve to do that which puts that glory on display distinctly and particularly. Maybe our resolutions would include setting aside additional time to pray, committing to Bible reading both in the evening as well as in the morning, or being more intentional about evangelism, which would be a great one. But in the providence of God, I can think of almost no better New Year's resolution for the Christian than the command that we receive from the Apostle Paul in our text this morning in Philippians 1.27, where Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If the supreme passion of our lives, like the Apostle Paul says in verse 20, is to magnify the glory of the Lord Jesus Conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel should top the list of our New Year's resolutions. I've been repeating for some months now that the theme of the book of Philippians is the gospel. Philippians is about the gospel. 
Now, it's not so much a presentation of the content of the gospel like the book of Romans is, and it's not so much a defense of the gospel in the face of heresy like the book of Galatians is. Philippians is about the implications of the gospel. It's about what practical effect or effects should the realities and truths of the gospel have on the lives of believers who enjoy the benefits of that gospel. In fact, based on the verse that I've just read, I've said a number of times that if I were to give a subtitle to the book of Philippians, I would subtitle it, The Gospel-Driven Life. Because Paul's aim, his chief desire in writing this epistle, is that his dear friends at Philippi would be living in a manner that is consistent with the implications of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on their behalf in the gospel that every facet of their lives would be shaped and driven by that gospel that they had come to trust and to treasure. And as Paul has set out to accomplish that goal, he begins in chapter 1 first by modeling for the Philippians what a gospel-driven life looks like. See, as early as his greeting in the very first verses of the letter, he reminds the Philippians of the Christian's identity as slaves of Christ and as saints in Christ which comes as a result of the gospel. And he adapts a summary version of the gospel as a way of saying hello when he says, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel in miniature. The grace of God has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we might be restored to peace with God. Well, then he goes on in verses 3 to 8, he launches into an exuberant expression of thanksgiving for the fellowship that he and the Philippians share as partners in gospel ministry. The joy, the confidence, and the affection that characterize Paul's thanksgiving are the results of a gospel-driven fellowship. And after this, in verses 9 to 11, in his gospel-driven prayer on behalf of the Philippians, he teaches us, he shows us, models for us that fellowship in the gospel issues in supplication to God for our fellow believers' growth in love, discernment, integrity, and fruitfulness, all of which abound to the glory of God, as you see there in verses 9 to 11. Well, then he moves on in verses 12 to 18. He turns to address his own circumstances. You see, the Philippians had heard that Paul has been imprisoned in Rome and he's waiting to stand trial before Nero, and Nero will decide whether he will be released to live on and minister again or, to, or whether he will die, which was a very real and potential possibility. And so the Philippians are concerned for Paul. And so what he does in verses 12 to 18 is to inform them of his circumstances and inform them that he's been rejoicing because far from hindering the gospel of Christ, his trials, his imprisonment, has really served, he says, to advance the gospel. He was getting the chance to preach the gospel to Nero's elite class of soldiers, the Praetorian Guard, who were guarding him for four hours at a time, or is it six hours at a time, four different guards every day. And he says that many of Caesar's own household, our brothers, are, are getting saved and they greet you, he says at the end of the letter. So people are getting saved through his ministry in the prisons as he preaches to this prison, these prison guards that are chained to his wrist 18 inches away from him. And besides that, on top of that, fellow believers were hearing about Paul's unwavering courage in the midst of these trials, and they were being strengthened to preach the gospel of Christ all the more boldly without fear of the consequences. 
And so even though he lost his personal freedom and he was constantly chained to a Roman soldier and certain preachers of Rome, he says, were maligning him and preaching out of envy and rivalry, Paul was rejoicing because Christ was being preached and the gospel was advancing. You see, his ministry was a gospel-driven ministry. And then we came to verses 19 to 21 where we got a glimpse into the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. The gospel-driven life is the one that has as its singular passion, the very bottom of its joy, the glory and the exaltation and the magnification of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the one whose eyes have been opened by the grace of God in the gospel to finally see the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ is then driven by that beautiful vision to be more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer and all that death can take, such that the cry of his heart is, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And someone who is in this way driven by the gospel will have a perspective and outlook on both life and death that makes both living and dying seem so attractive, so desirable, so full of blessing that it's almost impossible to prefer one over the other. And that is the very stuff of Paul's gospel-driven dilemma in verses 22 to 26. And so from start to finish, this, this entire opening chapter from the Apostle Paul has been an example of his gospel-driven life amidst his personal circumstances. But now, as we turn to verse 27 of chapter 1, we come to an entirely new section of the Philippian letter. Paul transitions from reporting about his own circumstances, his own affairs, how things are going with him and his ministry, to now addressing the Philippians themselves with specific exhortations and instructions. And all of these exhortations and instructions are set under a single rubric in the opening phrase of verse 27. The very first imperative, the first command in this entire letter waits until verse 27, and that command is, as we've repeated already, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Several times in our study of the book of Philippians, I've called this the thesis verse of the letter, and it is that. Because all of the exhortations and all of the instructions that Paul will give are summed up as living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so it acts as a sort of introduction to the rest that's of the letter that's coming. In verses 27 to 30, he exhorts them to courageously stand firm in the face of opposition and persecution and to suffer well as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he calls them to be unified through Christ-like humility. Be unified, be of one mind. And then in verses 5 to 11, he sets forth Christ as the supreme example of that humility. In verses 12 to 18, he calls them to work out their own salvation. Another way of saying, live in a manner worthy of, consistent with the gospel. With the result that they will brilliantly shine as lights in a dark world. Verse 15. And then in chapter 3, he urges them again to steadfastness in the face of false teaching, which is worthy, conduct worthy of the gospel. In chapter 4, he urges them again to unity, to be of one mind in the Lord. And he exhorts them to patience, to persistent prayer, and to contentment, all of which are conduct, make up conduct worthy of the gospel. 
All of these admonitions and all of these exhortations are simply the exposition of the command to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, to see to it that they live gospel-driven lives. And as we examine this single, weighty, comprehensive phrase together this morning, we're going to outline our study in a somewhat non-conventional manner, just along three broad headings. First, we're going to make some observations about the command itself. Second, we're going to consider two implications of that command. And third, we're going to close by making a number of applications of the command, giving practical examples of how the gospel directly shapes various facets of our lives. So, observations, implications, and applications. Hopefully that shouldn't be too hard to follow. As to the command itself then, the very first thing to observe, number one, is its supreme importance. Its supreme importance. And we see this from the very first word in the sentence, only, only. Now, again, remember the context in which this command comes. Paul is in prison. He's waiting to stand trial before Nero where he would discover whether the Romans would exonerate him and let him live or put him to death and he would, he would die in there in Rome. And as he contemplates these two alternatives, both life and death look so good to him that he can't know, he doesn't know which to set his heart on. He knows that to die and to be with Christ is very much better. But he also knows that continuing on in the flesh will mean fruitful labor and increased benefit for the Philippians, for the people of God, which will also be a blessing to him. And even though he has no direct revelation from God about the outcome, he believes, he's reasonably certain that in the providence of God, he'll be released to minister to the Philippians again. And it turns out that he was right. And so in verse 25, he says, convinced of this, not having a direct word from God, but being persuaded as I am, knowing the providence of God and the state of the church, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress, for your progress and joy in the faith. But now he says in verse 27, whatever happens to me, whether I'm condemned to death and I go to be with the Lord or whether I'm released and I can come and minister to you again, Whatever happens to me, make sure you don't miss this. This is supremely important. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The NIV accurately paraphrases the word only as whatever happens. The Holman Christian Standard Bible has just one thing. And one commentator says that the word only highlights this command as if lifting a warning finger. Don't miss this. Whatever happens, don't miss this. And so Paul is saying to the Philippians, as much as I appreciate your loving concern and affection for me, dear brothers and sisters, be sure that you are not supremely concerned with whether I live or whether I die. Rather, let your supreme interest, your ultimate concern, be about living in a manner that tells the truth about the gospel of Christ. Whether I come to you or whether I'm absent, you make sure that you live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And friends, if you're wondering if there's a way to make your pastors proud, if you're wondering how can I bless their hearts, how can I minister encouragement to them, it's this. It is to conduct yourselves in a manner that makes it plain that our labor in the study of the scriptures, our 
endeavors to proclaim the word faithfully and to exercise oversight, loving pastoral oversight over the flock has been used by God to aid in the cultivation of your growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to see that God is using this word that we're preaching, this care that we're giving to actually mature you and grow you. A famous preacher was one time often thanked profusely for his sermons by his congregation and people would come up to him and say, oh, I don't know how to thank you for that. That was just so wonderful. And in his response, uh, I'm sure tenderly was, my thanks will be your practice of it. And, and I just, I feel that with all my heart. The Apostle John says the very same thing in 3 John uh, verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children, my spiritual children, walk in the truth. Certainly Paul shared that sentiment. And so we see the supreme importance of this command to walk worthily of the gospel. Secondly, we need to observe its distinctive imagery. Its distinctive imagery. Now, you'll probably recognize that usually when Paul and the other New Testament authors give ethical instructions for how Christians ought to live, the normal word that they use is the term peripateo in Greek, which is commonly translated as walk. Walk. We even speak to one another this way about our Christian walk, right? We say, how, how is your walk with Christ doing? In fact, I quoted the Apostle John just a moment ago as saying that he has no greater joy than when his children walk in the truth. And Paul himself will speak this way later on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. But here in Philippians 1.27, Paul doesn't use peripateo, he doesn't use walk. He uses a distinctive verb that is found here and only one other place in the, in the entire New Testament. And the Greek word that gets translated conduct yourselves in a manner in the New American Standard or, or let your manner of life in the ESV is polituomai. Polituomai, from which we get the English word politics or political. It comes from the Greek word polis, which meant city. And so the verb form of polis, polituomai, means to live as a citizen, to discharge your obligations as a citizen faithfully. So why does Paul use this unique word? Well, I think it's plain that he uses this unique word highlighting the Philippians' duties as citizens because as we're told in Acts 16, 12, Philippi was a Roman colony. And not only was Philippi a Roman colony, the citizens of Philippi enjoyed what was called the Jus Italicum, a supreme elite provision of rights and privileges that belonged to Roman citizens. So the citizens of Philippi had the privileges of Roman citizenship, as if they were Roman citizens themselves. And they gloried in this. They loved it. They spoke Latin. They copied Roman architecture. And they even patterned their dress after Roman customs. In fact, in Acts 16, when Paul drives the spirit of divination out of the slave girl and, the, and her masters see that their hope for profit is gone, they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates. And you remember what they said? They said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to observe being Romans. See, they were proud of their elite Roman customs. They were proud that they were citizens of the capital of the empire. They loved identifying themselves as citizens of Rome. And so when Paul writes his letter to the Philippian Christians, 
He strikes at the very heart of this most dearly cherished identity in the surrounding culture. And he tells them, you may be tempted to take great delight in your Roman citizenship and your Roman customs and your Roman laws, but as followers of Jesus Christ, you have a citizenship of infinitely greater honor. For our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20. And so whatever happens, whatever you do, only conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be proud that you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Glory in the fact that you are governed by heaven's laws and the gospel's customs. You are a Christian before you are a Roman. And dear friends, make no mistake, you are a Christian before you are an American. You are a Christian before you are a Republican or a Democrat. Your identity is in Christ and your citizenship is in heaven. And the rule of that heavenly citizenship, the charter document to be cherished by the Christian, the constitution of the kingdom of heaven is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the city-state of the kingdom of God, it is the gospel which regulates and directs all of our conduct. It is the gospel of which we must walk worthily. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. It's the good news that Paul recounts in Philippians just a few verses later in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that Jesus laid aside his privileges as God, submitted himself to the weakness of human nature, and humbly and obediently died on the cross for the sins of his people and was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God in power and glory and authority. The gospel is the good news of the virgin birth, the sinless life, the substitutionary death and the undeniable resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, sent to ransom a remnant of worshipers, a remnant of all those who would simply turn from their sin and trust in His righteousness alone to earn their acceptance before God. Now, walking worthily of this gospel does not mean that you live in a way so as to earn the gospel, as to earn your salvation. That is impossible. That is contrary to the very nature of the gospel itself, which tells us that no man can purify himself and atone for his own sin. And neither does this mean that you are required to keep yourself saved by your own good works. That too is impossible. You could not perform enough good works to earn your keeping, your sanctification with God. None of us could do, ever do enough good deeds to earn any sort of favor with God relating to justification or sanctification because both are the work of God. Chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God begins the work of salvation in you at your conversion and he perfects that work through sanctification throughout your Christian life by, chapter 2, verse 13, working in you both to will and to work to his good pleasure. See, we work, we indeed do good deeds, we indeed work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but our work earns us absolutely nothing because the decisive work is God's, the one who is working in us, both to will and to work to his good pleasure. And so he gets the credit. He gets the glory, not us. So 
No, living in a manner worthy of the gospel doesn't mean that we earn God's favor, whether for conversion or for sanctification. Instead, it means that we should live a life of spiritual integrity, a life that corresponds with the truth of the gospel that we profess to believe. One preacher puts it this way, we are to conduct our lives as citizens of the kingdom of God in such a way as will reflect that we have been mastered by the gospel. Has the gospel truly taken root in your heart? Do you know the depth of your sin and the horror of your own helplessness and inability to save yourselves from the punishment that that sin deserves? And do you know the sweetness of forgiveness, the forgiveness purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ and ministered to your own heart by the Holy Spirit himself, which forgiveness is owing nothing at all to yourselves? Have you been a privileged beneficiary of such free and sovereign grace? Have you been united to Christ by faith and counted as righteous by God himself? Well, if so, order your life in such a way that is consistent with that gospel. Live in such a way so that if people were somehow able to see a, a summary version of the gospel at the same time as they could observe your life, that they would find no contradictions. They would find no reason to say, oh, that's, that's weird. Well, this says this, and here they are doing that. But that there is consistency, that there is correspondence between your life and the gospel that has mastered you. So Paul is telling the Philippians, you know the gospel. You have believed this gospel. I have personally experienced fellowship and partnership with you in this gospel as you have participated in my ministry, chapter 1, verse 5. But don't let up. Go on. Keep on conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of this gospel, that, such that you bring your practice in line with your position. And this is what the Spirit of God through His Word is telling us. Grace life, you know the gospel. You, the great majority, and I pray every last one of you, has believed this gospel. You share in the ministry of Grace Community Church. But don't let up. Keep on conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel in such a way that brings your practice in line with your exalted position in Christ. So much then for observations from the command itself. Now I want to turn briefly to two implications that this command has for us. And the first follows very closely from what we've just been saying. So in commanding believers to live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel, this clearly implies the necessity of the believer's transformed life. In other words, the first implication of this text is that sanctification is the necessary fruit of justification. Sanctification is the necessary fruit of justification. The one who has been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone according to the blessed uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who has been declared righteous in his position before God, will grow and will progress with respect to practical righteousness in his life. I'm going to say that one more time. The one who has been justified by grace through faith in Christ alone, according to the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who has been declared righteous by God in his position will grow and progress in practical righteousness throughout his Christian life. And this is the consistent testimony of the New Testament. 
and especially throughout Paul's letters. Turn briefly to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. should be only a few pages backwards. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. After Paul celebrates for three chapters the wonderful privileges of the Christian's exalted position in Christ, Paul turns in chapter 4 to say, verse 1, Therefore, that is, since all of these glorious benefits are yours as believers in Christ Jesus, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul explains that he patiently exhorted and instructed the Thessalonians so that you would walk, he says, in a manner worthy of the God who calls you to into his own kingdom and glory. And then he tells the Colossians, in chapter 1, verse, verses 9 and 10, that he always prays for them so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, it's everywhere. There is simply no category in the New Testament for a so-called carnal Christian. There is no category for a believer in Christ who is not also a disciple of Christ. There is no category for one who has received Christ as Savior and yet does not also submit to Him as Lord. Friends, Jesus did not suffer the unleashed fury of, of holy wrath. He did not endure the alienation from His own dear Father that He never deserved to know in order to free His people from the penalty of sin only for us to live enslaved to various sins for the rest of our lives. No, God has graciously united us to his son by faith so that we would be free from that kind of bondage to sin. Indeed, Paul asks in Romans 6 verse 2, how, how can we who died to sin still live in it? We can't. Dead people don't sin. We're dead to sin in Christ. How can we go on sinning? Romans 6, verse 4, he says, We've been buried with Christ through baptism into death. We died with him so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. You see, our union with Christ by faith means that when he died, we also died to sin with him. And therefore, when he was raised, we also were raised to life with him. Why? So that we could continue to walk according to the pattern of this world? Absolutely not. So that, Romans 6, verse 4, so that we might walk in newness of life, so that we might live in practice in a way that manifests the reality and the truth of our position. Now, that doesn't mean that we're free from the presence of sin. Newness of life doesn't mean perfection. That simply will not happen this side of heaven. It just won't. There's a Paul will address that later on in chapter 3, verses 15 and following. But there is a world, friends, there is a world of middle ground between sinless perfection and enslavement to our fleshly lusts and passions. Paul goes on to say in Romans 6 that you have been freed from slavery to sin and have become slaves of righteousness, Romans 6, 18. And so because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf, in his work of the gospel, because you have been declared righteous in the sight of the thrice holy God, 
Because the shackles of sin and death have been shattered by the grace of God, manifest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, walk in freedom. Dear friends, it was for freedom that Christ set us free, Galatians 5 verse 1. So walk in freedom. Don't live as slaves. And so the first implication of the command to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is that sanctification is the necessary fruit of justification. The pursuit of holiness in the believer's life is not optional. There is, Hebrews 12 verse 14, a practical lived out holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that has to sting some of you. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And if you're sitting here listening to this and you're pricked in your conscience, I understand that this can be a frightening feeling, but don't stifle it. That's grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. If your life is characterized by an unbroken pattern of sin, you need to deal honestly with the Lord this morning. Perhaps the gospel has not ever taken a root in your heart. And if that's the case, you need to have dealings with him. You need to have a, a difficult dealing with the Lord of the universe. And living a life worthy of the gospel is impossible if the gospel hasn't taken root in your heart. And I know that's a difficult conclusion to come to, but if that's you this morning, I have great news for you. You can be saved from that. The, the chains that bind you in your sin can be broken by this gospel that I'm proclaiming to you. You can be saved from that. The gospel of Christ is powerful enough to break those chains that bind you. You need only to face what you are, to own your sin, to acknowledge it before a holy God, to confess it to him, and then turn Turn from seeking satisfaction and pleasure in those broken cisterns of all of those idols and seek your satisfaction, all of it, in Jesus Christ, in the fountain of delights himself. Christ who lived a, a perfect life of righteousness, the life of righteousness that you have failed to live, could never live, and who promises to bestow that righteousness freely to anyone who turns from their sin and trusts in that righteousness alone for their acceptance before God. Come to Christ if that's you this morning. But if you've done that hard work of self-examination and you've come to the conclusion that the gospel has taken root in your heart, that God's grace has been evident in your life, praise God, you still need to do battle with this sin. You still need, you still need to fight the fight of holiness but we all need to recognize what will fuel that fight and what will serve as the motor of that battle. And that brings us to our second implication of the command to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Number two, sanctification is not only the necessary fruit of justification, sanctification is fueled by gospel grace. Sanctification is fueled by gospel grace. I want you to notice that Paul could have chosen anything to begin this section of his letter to the Philippians. He could have simply begun announcing lists of new things that needed to be done, new do's and don'ts, commands to follow, habits to break, habits to form. He could have told them, you know, hey, just do it, you know, Nike sanctification, just do it. He could have given them a 12-step program, or he could have prescribed to them a, a system of, for accountability partners, 
He could have guilted them into trying to pay God back for his work done on the gospel by saying something like, well, Jesus died for you, so the least you could do is live for him. But he doesn't do any of that. He grounds all of his calls to obedience and all of his calls to holiness in the grace of the gospel itself. He calls them to consider who they already are positionally in Christ by virtue of their union with him and what he has accomplished on their behalf in the gospel. And he calls us to consider that God has already changed the very identity of our souls. He's given us a new nature he has already objectively freed us from the penalty and the power. That wonderful hymn says he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. He doesn't just cancel sin. He breaks the power of that canceled sin. And it is in the, that freedom of that grace that we are called to then be who we are. Isn't that gloriously simple? To be who we are, to walk in the resurrection life that we have been graciously granted to be raised and, and placed into. We need to bring our practice in line with what God has already declared us to be for the sake of His Son. How gloriously free. You don't, you don't fight to get accepted. You fight as one who is already accepted. That is gloriously freeing. How Marvelous a grace is that, that even after I get saved, I don't have to fight to, to be accepted with God. I'm already accepted. I need now only to labor in the strength of that acceptance and be who he has made me to be, to walk according to my own nature. We've got to realize that the Christian's faithful fight of holiness is not fought only by white-knuckled self-denial as you begrudgingly do your duty, all the while cursing God in your heart because you hate all the fun you're missing out on. No. The strength for the fight for faithful obedience in the Christian life, the motor of sanctification is the gospel itself. It is sufficient. It is in considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6, verse 11. It's in considering ourselves to be as we actually are and then living out the truth of what has already been accomplished on our behalf. When we understand this, we cease to regard the Christian life, the commandments of God, as a burden. 1 John 5, 3, the commandments of God are not burdensome. And we understand them to be the natural response of one whose heart has been quickened, the one whose life has been regenerated so that the divine life now exists in the soul of man. Of course, if you, those of you familiar with uh, the, the 17th century Scottish Puritan Henry Schugel know that title that I just mentioned, The Life of God in the Soul of Man, was a title of a wonderful book written by this Puritan Henry Schugel. And he, he articulated this reality very well. He wrote this, the love which a pious man, get this now, get this, this is, how do we get sanctified? How do we increase in holiness? How do we increase in love and worship for God in Christ? The love which a pious man bears to God and goodness is not so much by virtue of a command enjoining him so to do as by a new nature instructing and prompting him to do it. Nor doth he pay his devotions as an unavoidable tribute only to appease the divine justice or to quiet his clamorous conscience. But those religious exercises are the proper emanations of the divine life, the natural employments of the newborn soul. 
See, he's not denigrating commandments. He's not saying commandments are worthless or avoid commandments or we don't need to obey. He's saying that if you have the life of God in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, that you are excited to holiness and obedience, not supremely by an external pressure of demands, but by an internal compulsion of love, which issues from a new nature. If you are born again, if you have new life, this is as natural as breathing for you. If the divine life has been sown within you by the regeneration of your heart, then the fight for obedience is simply acting in line with who you are. And so when Paul commands us to conduct our lives as citizens worthy of the gospel, he's showing us that sanctification is fueled by gospel grace. There's a wonderful little rhyme that masterfully captures the beauty of divine grace and sanctification. It's often attributed to John Bunyan, but we don't really know who the author is. It says, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, for it bids me fly and gives me wings. That is the grace of the gospel applied to the believer's fight to sanctification. The law tells you to run, run, do, do, work, work, and it chops off your hands, doesn't give you any help at all. But the gospel tells you to do things. It bids you to fly harder than run. But then it comes riding in the chariot of God's gracious work and power to work in your heart to give you wings to accomplish what God has commanded. And that's the power in which you fight. You don't jump off a building hoping to fly. You rest in the wings of gospel grace. And so the question is, how? How do we fight for holiness according to the grace that's ours in the gospel? If an implication of the command to let our life be worthy of the gospel is that sanctification is fueled by gospel grace, the gospel is a sufficient motive for holiness well, then the gospel needs to have implications for every aspect of our lives, doesn't it? Because we are commanded to do all that we do to the glory of God, to please Him in all respects, as we read a little bit earlier. And the fact of the matter is, it does. The gospel of Christ is so supremely relevant that the truth embodied in it directly and particularly impacts every facet of your life. So how? How does the gospel directly shape and direct your pursuit of holiness? How do we practically bring the gospel to bear on the various facets of our lives so that we might conduct our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? I'm going to try to answer that question by modeling that process for you with 12 different Christian virtues. Don't get scared. We'll go through them briefly, quickly. And I'm hoping that as we go through these, these 12 virtues, I'm hoping that this will serve as a model or a paradigm for you to do the same thing so that in the various situations of your own lives, you'll be able to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel when the various situations confront you as you go through life in this new year. So I'm, I can't be exhaustive, certainly, but I hope to give, give you somewhat of a model and hit on some of the most important ones. Number one in this section of applications Love for God. Number one is love for God. You might as well start at the top, right? And here I'm referring to the love for God himself in the person of Christ that manifests in a compelling desire to be in communion with him, to spend time in fellowship with him through prayer and through Bible study. 
1 Peter 3.18 tells us that the the purpose of Christ's work in the gospel is so that he might bring us to God. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, so that he might restore us to fellowship and communion with our Father. And in the same way, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 to 6, teaches that the gospel opens our blind eyes to finally see the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. And so if, then, that my eyes have been opened to see such beauty, how incongruous would it be for me to cut myself off from seeing him revealed in his word and from proving him to be sweet and mighty in prayer? If Christ died to bring me to God, if that was the purpose of the gospel, how can I fail to seek his face in regular personal worship? You see, that's how you bring the gospel to bear on devotional time. It's morning worship born out of the grace that has come to you in the gospel. You've been freed to see glory, so go see it. You've been brought to fellowship and communion with God, so go get in fellowship and communion with God. Number two, love for fellow Christians. Start with the greatest commandment, go to the next one. Love God, love your neighbor. Number two, love for fellow Christians. If God has demonstrated his love for his people by delivering his beloved son over to death for their salvation, how can we withhold our love from them? How can we refuse to lay down our lives to benefit them the way our Savior? Is our, our lives worth more than Jesus' life? No way. Indeed, how can one who professed to love Christ not love his bride? Imagine if a man said to his friend, hey, James, you know, I just love spending time together, brother. Man, we, when we get together, you're just such a benefit to me. You always cause me to exalt, you cause the, the Lord to be exalted in my affections. I, but let me tell you something, man. I can't stand your wife. She is just ridiculous. What, what did you do? How'd that go over? Not too well, I don't, I don't think. Or change the metaphor. 1 John 5, 1 says that whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Who would you think if after spending some time with you, another couple just kind of poured out their heart? Oh, it was just such a wonderful time of fellowship. So thank, you, thank you so much for, for praying for us, being our friends, going through life together with us. But I got to tell you guys, your kids are a bunch of snot-nosed brats. Go put them in their room. Lock them up, man. I'll come over, but make sure your kids are taken care of. Maybe get a babysitter or something. I don't know of any faster or better way to alienate parents than to insult their children. I mean, you, get, you are immediately mortal enemies with a parent if you give their children a hard time. Why? Because, because the, the, who we love is a reflection of our own self, of our own soul. And we love our wives, we should. And we love our children, we should. So if you insult my wife or you insult my children, you insult me. So how can we love God? And, and yet respond in such a way to our brothers and sisters who are called the children of our Father? How can we love Christ and insult his bride and think poorly of his bride? And because we have been served so faithfully by Christ's work in the gospel, we are ready and eager not only to love one another, but to serve one another. We were rescued from the dominion of darkness by one who gladly laid down his life in order to redeem us. And because of this, we should be gladly willing to lay down our lives in sacrificial, give your life away service for the benefit of God's people, like we heard a couple weeks ago. 
And also closely related to love for the brethren and service to the brethren is unity. Number three, if the gospel unites us to Christ by faith, the gospel, we are united to Christ by the gospel and we're one with him, that means we are one with all those who are united to him, right? So therefore, we can eagerly and humbly seek to resolve division, to put dissensions out of our midst, remembering that we are already one with each other. We are already united to each other by the objective work in the gospel. We're going to look at this more next week, but one of the first things that Paul says in Philippians 1.27 when he seeks to unfold this command is to say that he hopes to find them standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's three times in a phrase that he's made the point of unity being a necessary result of a life worthy of the gospel. And of course, the way unity will be achieved is through, number four, humility. Humility. Unity is cultivated when we humbly regard one another as more important than ourselves. And I don't know if there's a response more consistent with a gospel of sovereign grace than humility. We who tout the sovereignty of God and salvation should be the most humble people in the world because we know better than some and treasure and trust more than others how wonderfully free our salvation was and how absolutely nothing of it came from us. We deserve hell. And so in every situation in our lives, when somebody we feel somebody's taking advantage of us, we can remember that we are always, no matter what it is, we are always getting better than we deserve. And that will help us walk in humility. Number five, joy. Joy. Friends, the gospel is good news. Paul calls it glad tidings of good things in Romans 10, 15. The gospel by which we are rescued from our sin, forgiven, freed from punishment, birthed into newness of life, lived for the glory of God, finally in fellowship with our Father from whom we've been alienated all our lives, doomed to waste our lives. That brings the greatest joy imaginable. I don't care what's going on in your life. How imbalanced and improper would it be for us to be a gloomy, morose, habitually angry or bitter or complaining or discontent people? It just doesn't fit. The gospel is the greatest motivation in the world for us to obey that wonderful command to rejoice always. Number six, generosity. Generosity. When Paul seeks to stir up the Corinthians to sacrificial giving for the saints in Jerusalem, he reminds them of God's own indescribable gift, he calls it, in the person of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. And in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You see, for, for us, for whom to live is Christ and to die is gain, for whom Christ is more satisfying than all that life can offer, that all that money can buy, it should be the most natural thing in the world for us to be generous, to be radically generous. Greed and covetousness and discontentment make absolutely no sense for the Christian who possesses all things in Christ. Hebrews 13.5 says, be, make sure your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? Because I will never leave you. Neither will I ever forsake you. We have Christ and all things belong to Christ. And so the world is ours, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. 
So we should be radically, it should be natural for us to be a generous people. Number seven, sexual purity. See, the gospel brings us the good news that even while we were sinners, we were declared righteous by the holy God. So how can we who have been cleansed by the priceless, pure blood of Jesus Christ, united to him who is perfectly pure, how can we give ourselves over to sexual immorality and lust and impurity? Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 6.15, don't you know that because of the gospel, your body, your members are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And then he says in verse 20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Your body is not yours. It belongs to Jesus. He paid for it. And so let us not regard the blood of Christ so lightly so as to engage in impurity. Somewhat related to that, number eight, purity of speech. Those of us who are benefited by the work of the one who is called the truth, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We are called to let no unwholesome word come from our mouths, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it might give grace to the one who hears. And Paul goes on to say a few verses later in Ephesians 5, 4, that there must be no filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting. Because he says, because it's not fitting. It's not fitting for one who's been cleansed by the gospel. There must not even be a hint of this. It's just not becoming. It's not, it doesn't fit. Double entendre and innuendo and crude jokes have absolutely no place on the lips of a Christian who has been redeemed by the gospel. Number nine, headship and submission in marriage. In that glorious final chapter or final section of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us that marriage is designed by God as an institution to reflect the relationship of the gospel between Christ and his church. So the question for you, husbands, is, is your life marked by the loving headship and servant leadership of your wife? Are you taking proactive responsibility to shepherd your wife as you would, as, as Christ would nourishes and cherishes the church? And wives, is your character marked by the joyful, eager submission to your husband's authority in respect for Christ? Submitting to your husband as the church joyfully and eagerly and happily submits to her Lord. Number 10, going from marriage to biblical parenting. Parents, the question here is, if we are adopted children of our Father, of such a gracious, loving Father, how can we be cold or harsh or unforgiving or uninvolved or aloof from our children? How can we be graceless to our children when our Father has been so gracious to us, His adopted children? And on the other hand, how can we care so little, how can we care so little for the well-being of our children by failing to discipline them and reprove them faithfully and even sharply at some points? when necessary, just as our Heavenly Father is faithful to reprove us and discipline us, sometimes even sharply, when it is for our good and benefit and holiness, Hebrews 12. Number 11, from the home and marriage and family to integrity in the workplace. Integrity in the workplace. Again, if we serve Him who is called the truth, how can we deal dishonestly with the people that we work with? How can we cheat our employers? For better or worse, friends, your unbelieving co-workers look at you and what they see in you, if you've been faithful to proclaim your faith in Christ, they look at you and they see, okay, that's what Jesus is like, that's what Christianity is like. 
it's just a fact of life. We know we're thankful that that's not the case in truth. And praise God that my life is not the gospel. But nevertheless, they see you as the representative of Jesus, as the ambassador of Christianity. And so what are you communicating about Christ and Christianity by your speech, by your attitude? Are you unsaying with your life what you say with your lips? Does your life tell the truth about the message you proclaim? See, it should be plain to those who work with you by your speech and by your actions that you're an honest man, that you put in eight hours work for eight hours pay, that you, and that you're working for the approval of one who is infinitely more important than your supervisor across the hall. And finally, number 12, evangelism. And dear friends, in God's name, how can we profess to love the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ and yet not be eager to proclaim the good news of that glory to an unbelieving world? I just don't get it. How can, we, how can we love the glory of Christ and not so desire that others love and enjoy what we have come to love and enjoy and worship what we know to be infinitely satisfying? And so that God can receive the glory and the worship that he's worthy of from those people. It simply cannot be that we, who are the beneficiaries of such a glorious gospel, can remain silent in such a day of good news. So the gospel, the impl an implication of the gospel, conducting ourselves worthy of the gospel means to preach that gospel from the, the overflow of a satisfied heart, a heart gladdened by the glorious grace of God so that others will come to enjoy that and so God will be worshipped by as many people as possible. Well, such then is Paul's command to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We've observed the supreme importance of this command manifested in the word only. We've observed its distinctive imagery as Paul uses this metaphor of citizenship to get to the heart of the Philippians and the heart of our identity as Christians. We've seen the rule of the citizen of heaven as the gospel of Christ. We've considered the implications of such a command that it, necess that it necessitates the fact that justification demands sanctification, that a believer must pursue practical holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we've seen that that pursuit is founded upon and driven by the gospel itself. And I trust that these applications have been helpful and that they've prov provided a sufficient evidence and hopefully a sufficient example and model for you to do the same as, uh, as you in your own lives seek to see how the tentacles of the gospel reach to every facet of your life. So in this new year, 2013, Amidst resolutions to eat better, exercise more, procrastinate less, consider Grace Life as of first importance how you will put into practice Paul's exhortation to the Philippians and to us to conduct yourselves, to live your lives as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how Im immeasurable and limitless it is that we could plunge into a single phrase for an entire hour. I pray and I trust that your people have been benefited from your word and I pray that you would cause your word to bear fruit in their lives, that they would walk worthy, would conduct themselves as citizens worthy of the gospel. Overwhelm us with the reality of who we are in Christ, who we were made to be as you gave us new life freely by sovereign grace and then cause us by that same free sovereign grace to walk in a manner that is consistent with our position. That's what we desire because we desire your glory and honor. We desire to do all things to the glory of God, to walk, live, serve, speak, so that the glory of God gets put on display. We thank you and we love you in Jesus Christ. Amen.
For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.